Well, guys, I long that God has been meeting you this week. It's been an exciting week so far as we've considered and been thinking through just the, the Holy Week of Jesus, the Passion Week that marks everything that just took place, the center of time in many ways. Tonight we come and we want to think about Jesus Christ crucified. Now, let's just address it right now. Maybe you're familiar, maybe you're not. Why are we here now? I mean, why are we here on Thursday night? Why are we not here tomorrow, which is traditionally known as Good Friday? Well, let's take a couple moments and just think about that and just invite you to think about it with me. Here's what I want you to understand. Uh, you know, I really do believe that Jesus was crucified on Thursday. We're going to talk a little bit about that tonight. But there are some things that are worth knowing that are not worth arguing about. There are some things that are worth just what God would work in it, and yet it's not worth kind of dividing and division. That's this. See, we think about it right now that Jesus died on the cross is the incredible reality, the thing that defines and is, is the, the power of that in our lives. I think about what Paul would say when he talked about it in Corinthians where he said, I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Our message, our hope, our power is found in believing that Jesus died on the cross. And I just want you to understand as we think about that this evening, that reality is paramount. The discussion or argument or divide over when it happens is not. Hey, there are believers all across our city, across our nation, around the world, many of them who believe that Jesus was crucified on Friday. And you know what? I'm fine with that. You know, I mean, it's, it's really not an argument about, hey, no, I think it had to happen here. And it's like, you know what? As long as we understand. I mean, Jesus died for our sins. I mean, that's really, I mean, that's the key thing. It's not really, you know, worth dividing. It's not worth an argument. And that's where this is for me. I solidly believe that Jesus was crucified on Thursday, but it would never be something that I would enter into a debate over with somebody or argument. It's like, hey, if you think he was crucified on Friday, I am so good with that, you know, because the key is he died on the cross. Nevertheless, it's still worth us considering. Some things are worth us knowing, not arguing about, and this is one of them, and I'm just going to let you know I've been compelled to believe this through my own study of, of the Scriptures. See, I did not grow up in church, and uh, so I didn't come to faith till like at the end of my high school and, and just brand new kind of discovering. And as I walked into that, I learned at that moment what many of you guys ha have learned. You know, that we think about kind of the layout of this week, we would take it and put it on our calendar, and we'd say, okay, Sunday, that's Resurrection Sunday. I mean, that's universally agreed on. We know that. It is stated that way in Scripture pretty clear. Traditionally, though, again, the concept has been that Jesus was crucified on Good Friday. I believed that as well. I mean, because that's what people told me. It's like, well, that's what it's got to be, you know, what happened. And then in reading through the Scriptures, I can still remember the moment it happened. I can remember reading there in Matthew's Gospel and just reading Jesus just talking about this. And he said, for as Jonah was three days and three nights in the well's belly, so the Son of Man shall be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And I just want you to notice how clear this is. Jesus says it's going to be three days and it's going to be three nights. Now, I'm sure you've done it. I'm sure you've kind of figured out the math. If you kind of, you know, take the calendar and you look at it, if Jesus was crucified on Friday, there's no three nights. I mean, I, I heard the arguments when I first got saved. We'd be like, well, you know, like a partial day is really a whole day. And so, you know, if you count Fridays, and it's like, well, you know, you can kind of do that if you're just doing days. But there's just no way to have three nights if Jesus was crucified on Friday. You only have Friday night and you only have Saturday night. And I remember sitting there just reading that passage and thinking, this doesn't fit. <laughs> I mean, this doesn't fit what I've been taught. It doesn't fit what I've believed. And, and you know, there's moments in that whole space of, of like, what in the world is this? How, how could this be? And, and confusion. But I remember just beginning trying to process it through and just think, okay, could I, could, you know, is the passage wrong? Is the, is, is, is something I'm not understanding here? And then start wondering, well, what if my understanding's wrong? And I began to question, you know, what if Jesus didn't die on, on Friday? What if it was really Thursday that he died on? Now, 
At that moment, I honestly didn't know anybody else that believed that, but I'm just going to quickly tell you, it's actually a very common re- uh, understanding. So many of my uh, just compatriots, my co- colleagues, other pastors and others, they're like, yeah, you know, when you really look into it, it, is, it probably is Thursday, and nevertheless, people think it's Friday, and people have Friday off because it's a holiday, and hey, it's just a great kind of thing to kind of, uh, kind of dive into. It's like, well, I understand that, but, you know, I began to again just think, okay, well, how could that be? I mean, and so I began to study it and, and again, found others that believe the same thing. So let's just quickly walk it through. So here's what we have. So we know this. If we put the calendar up there, we know Jesus was resurrected on Sunday morning, hands down. If Jesus was crucified on Thursday, well, here's what we have. We know that Saturday is a Sabbath, and that's going to be referred to in the text that, that he, he, he's in the grave during the Sabbath. How would that work on Friday? How would that even begin to work out? Well, here's what I want you to process through with me. We get a couple of interesting insights when you begin to just to pay attention to Scripture, and one of them's really found as we begin to look at what Luke tells us as he kind of records this whole thing. He says, you know, this man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus, speaking of Joseph at Arimathea. He took it down, wrapped it in linen, laid it in a tomb uh, that was hewn out of the rock, and there was no one who had ever been laid before, and that day was the preparation and the Sabbath drew near. So it's a day of preparation. John's gospel gives it to us this way. It says, therefore, because it was the preparation day that the body should not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day. The Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So again, just pay attention to the text. He says, okay, you know, Jesus is on the cross on the Sabbath, and yet it very specifically tells us that that Sabbath is a different Sabbath. It's a high Sabbath. That day is a, is a high day. So what does that mean? I mean, how does that, that really work? Well, again, if we're thinking this through, we know that Saturday is a normal Sabbath. If Thursday is a high Sabbath, again, where would that be found? Well, again, we have the Scriptures for this, and so you can look into it. In Leviticus, when it talks about the whole Passover celebration that is a part of this week, it says, these are the feasts of the Lord, holy convocations, which you shall proclaim, at their appointed times, on the 14th day of the first month at twilight is the Lord's Passover. Then on the 15th day of the same month is the Feast of Unleavened Bread to the Lord. Seven days you must eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall have a holy convocation. You shall do no customary work on it. Said simply, it's a Sabbath. It's a Sabbath no matter what day it falls on, because Passover moves kind of like Christmas or anything else, it moves, so it's, it's different days of the week every year. And so whatever it is, that first day, it's going to be a Sabbath, even if it doesn't fall on Saturday. It becomes a special Sabbath or a high Sabbath that God prescribe, prescribes in the midst of that. So we go back to our calendar, we think of it through kind of simply. So if this is the way it works, Saturday's a Sabbath, we know that Jesus is on the cross on the Sabbath, I mean, He's, he's in the tomb on the Sabbath, excuse me, and Friday becomes a high Sabbath. It becomes a place where these two Sabbaths ran together that year. There wasn't one, but two, so they had to wait for a good 48 hours. And again, that's kind of a fascinating reality. Again, we actually get other clues in Scripture that are a part of it. Let me give you one more. So you're reading there, for example, in Matthew's Gospel, when it talks about the uh, tomb and Jesus rising, it says, now after the Sabbath, as the first day of the week began to dawn, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary, they came to see the tomb. That's how it reads in the English, and that's how you would read it. It makes perfect sense. But as you may know that the Bible isn't written in English. It was written in Greek for the New Testament, Hebrew for the Old. In Greek, this word Sabbath here is sabaton, which is plural for Sabbath, which is kind of an interesting thing. If you were to translate it literally, it would be after the Sabbaths. Our English translators didn't do that. Our English translators translated it after the Sabbath. Now, let me be entirely just clear and also gracious. I'm not accusing anybody of duplicity. I'm not saying that they did it, uh, you know, in, in a way to kind of be deceptive. Honestly, in Greek, you can sometimes do that for emphasis. Sometimes, you know, just to almost just make something powerful, you can kind of put it in the plural and put it in a singular place. And so, again, that's kind of how they translated it in English, but it wasn't really what's in the text. It literally is after the Sabbath, which is exactly what we find. I mean, I'm just going to put to you, I think everything in the text begins to reason out to us that it really does fit just the scenario that 
that it happened on Thursday. Now, that's incredibly helpful for me for a number of reasons. Again, I take you back to that first moment where I began to think this through, and I came across that text, and it's like, you know, Jesus was in the grave three days and three nights, and I can remember just almost a little bit of panic, almost a little bit of like, something's off, like it's broken. I mean, this doesn't work. I mean, uh, it doesn't add up, you know, somehow, you know, almost that feeling that you get when you feel like maybe somebody's lied to you, and and you're like, somebody's pulling the wool over my head, because, my eyes, because I don't understand how this works. I don't get three days and three nights from Friday. But I can tell you, kind of searching through this, it's given me incredible joy just to go, no, Jesus said what he said, and he meant what he said. When he said three days and three nights, it literally was three days and three nights. And that just kind of washes over my soul. I mean, it just kind of washes over me in a way that is just helpful and says, okay, I get it. I think it's there. Now, again, there's, there's, there, these things are enough to compel you to, to at least consider that it really is this way. Now, honestly, there's more. If you are technically minded, and a few of you are, uh, there's more. I mean, this is not an, there's more that would kind of play into this whole thing. For starters, we really begin to understand that Jesus took his Passover early. Uh, lots of good reasons for that. We understand that, you know, that when, when it even says it was the preparation day for the Passover, Jesus took his Passover on Wednesday. He, did, he took his Passover early. That kind of plays into the week. Also, the, the way the Jewish days move, that their days begin in the evening and move to the morning, there's a lot of plays into that that really solidly lock this down. And I just want to tell you, if you are so interested, you can, you can pursue that. I think it's enough to compel us, or at least enough to give you an understanding as to why we are here tonight, that we're gathering tonight because I really do believe that it would have been today. It would have been Thursday earlier in the day when Jesus would have died on the cross, and then that would play into everything that's here. So that's kind of where it began. So we've walked through it. I, I hopefully answered some of those questions. I am interested. Boy, if you have others' uh, thoughts in that, if you have other questions in that, hey, you can definitely kind of process it with me. But now leaving the debate and the question as to why we're here on Thursday, let's think about the cross just for a few minutes with tonight. Let's just kind of gaze into this. And so if you have a Bible, would you take them and open up with me to Mark's gospel? We're going to be in the gospel of Mark. We're going to begin in chapter 14. Mark's gospel, for chapter 14. And here's what I want to do with you. I'm going to do something that's not the normal way we do things uh, here at a normal service. Uh, I want to do some, we're going to talk what, about what's here in Mark 14 and 15 just very briefly. And then we're going to transition to that from that over into the Psalms and talk about that. But here in this section, I just want to read it. I just want to read it with you. I, I think there's just something powerful about just thinking through the events of this day in the life of Christ. And so we're going to read about a chapter and a half. Uh, and so I'm just going to read it, going to fo- ask you to follow along. I'll make a couple comments, but for the most part, I just want you to feel it. And so you can either follow along or you can just try to hear me and, and, and pay attention and just think through the events of this day. So you can just kind of place them into this moment and long that God would help you in that. So as we aim at that, I'm going to take one more moment and just pause and ask God's help as we do this, that now we know why we're here, that we would be able to hear this. Father, thank you for your, your word. Thank you for what you give us. Jesus, we need to see you, and I'm asking now that as we're here on a Thursday considering your death on the cross, would you open up our minds? Would you open up our understanding? Would you give us the ability to see and comprehend and feel that which you would have for us tonight? God, would you do what I could never do? Would you take just the power of your word and press it into lives and just as we think through just this incredible reality, that we would know it, see it, and be impacted by the cross in a far greater way. Got to ask for that right now and ask for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, well, Mark chapter 14, we pick it up in verse 32. Uh, We get there and we're picking up right from where we left off last night. Says then they came to the place which was named Gethsemane, which he said to his disciples, "Sit here while I pray." So as soon as Jesus finishes the, the seder dinner with his disciples, it tells us, you know, that he had explained to them what it was. They leave that upper room, 
and they make their way to the Garden of Gethsemane, which is not a garden, it's really more of an orchard. Uh, it is a place where olive trees were and still are on the Mount of Olives. But once more, just time-wise, we're, if you could place yourself back, we're at Wednesday night in, in our, on our calendar. So he's just kind of finished through the Seder meal, and, and they've left the Seder, they've made their way to Gethsemane, and again, he just tells them, there in verse 32, sit here while I pray. Verse 33, and he took Peter, James, and John with him, and he began to be troubled and deeply distressed. Then he said to them, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death, stay here and watch. He went a little further and fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible that the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. Then he came and found them sleeping and said to Peter, Simon, are you sleeping? Could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray, lest you enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, he went away and prayed and spoke the same words. When he returned, he found them asleep again, for their eyes were heavy, and they did not know how to answer him. Then he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? It is enough. The hour has come. Behold, the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. And immediately, while he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, with a great multitude with swords and clubs, came from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now his betrayer had given them a signal, saying, Whomever I kiss, he is the one seize him and lead him away safely. So there, there, Matt, Garden of Gethsemane, Judas is coming to betray him. Once more, I think you get it. Judas has this kind of cloak and dagger thing so that he can betray Jesus where maybe nobody would have known. Like somehow he'd give Jesus a kiss and kind of pretend to still be on his side and still not be, but it's kind of the ultimate betrayal in many ways. Verse 45, as soon as he had come, immediately he went up to him and said to him, Rabbi, Rabbi, and kissed him. Then they laid their hands on him and took him. And one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. John tells us it's Peter, so we know who it is. Then Jesus answered and said to them, Have you come out against a robber with swords and clubs to take me? I was daily with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But the scriptures must be fulfilled. And they took him and fled. They all forsook him, excuse me, and fled. Now a certain young man followed him, having a linen cloth thrown around his naked body, and the young men laid hold of him, and he left the linen cloth and fled from them naked. Very likely Mark, most Bible students think. Verse 53, and they led Jesus away to the high priest, and he was with him there where assembled all the chief priests, the elders, and the scribes, but Peter followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he sat with the servants and warmed himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and all the council sought testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimonies did not agree. Then some rose up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with hands, and within three days I will build another made without hands." But not even then did their testimony agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, saying, Do you answer nothing? What is it that these men testify against you? But he kept silent and answered nothing. Again, the high priest asked him, saying, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Hey, some of you were with us back in Daniel when we saw that, when Jesus quotes from, from the passage given there in Daniel and just echoing through his coming, his return there in Daniel chapter 7, verse 63. 
Then the high priest tore his clothes and said, What further need do we have of witnesses? You have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? And they all condemned him to be deserving of death. Then some began to spit on him, to blindfold him, and beat him, and say to him, Prophesy. And the officers struck him with the palms of their hands. It's worth just trying to kind of just watch this whole thing. I mean, we're in the middle of the night. Again, he was arrested there in the garden Wednesday night. We move. The trial is not going to happen with Pilate till sunup. And so everything now is happening in the dark of night, in the middle of night. But Jesus is beginning to be abused. And actually, he's already racked with pain. I mean, not only is he going without sleep, but it tells us in Luke's gospel in Gethsemane that the intensity of his prayer literally had made him sweat drops of blood. So he's already physically just moved into this moment, picking it up in verse 66. Now, Peter was below in the courtyard. One of the servant girls of the high priest came, and when she saw Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, you are with Jesus of Nazareth. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you are saying. And when he went out on the porch, a rooster crowed. And a servant girl saw him again and began to say to those who stood by, this is one of them. But he denied it again. And a little later, those who stood by said to Peter, Surely you are one of them, for you are a Galilean, and your speech shows it. Then he began to curse and swear, and said, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And a second time the rooster crowed, and Peter called to mind the word that Jesus had said to him, Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And when he thought about it, he wept. Immediately, chapter 15, verse 1, in the morning... The chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council, and they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him to Pilate. So we're at sunup Thursday morning. I mean, it's immediate. As soon as the sun is up, as soon as it's day, they're, they're executing their plan. And Pilate asked him, verse 2, are you the king of the Jews? And he answered and said to him, it is as you say. And the chief priests accused him of many things, but he answered nothing. And then Pilate asked him again, saying, do you answer nothing? See how many things they testify against you. But Jesus still answered nothing, so that Pilate marveled. Now at the feast, he was accustomed to releasing one of the prisoners to them, whomever they requested. And there was one named Barabbas, who was chained with his fellow rebels. And they had committed, and he, he, they had committed murder and rebellion. Then the multitude, crying aloud, began to ask him to do just as he'd always done for them. But Pilate answered them, saying, Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? For he knew that the chief priests had handed him over because of envy. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd, so that he should, they sh he should rather release Barabbas to them. Pilate answered and said to them again, What do you want me to do with him, whom you call the king of the Jews? And so they cried out again, Crucify him. Pilate said to him, Why? What evil has he done? But they cried out all the more, crucify him. So Pilate, wanting to gratify the crowd, released Barabbas to them and had, de had delivered Jesus after he had scourged him to be crucified. Then the soldiers led him away into the hall called the Praetorium. And they called together the whole garrison and they clothed him with purple and they twisted a crown of thorns and put it on his head and began to salute him. Hail, King of the Jews! They struck him on the head with a reed and spat on him, and bowing the knee, they worshipped him. And when they had mocked him, they took the purple off him and put his own clothes on him and led him out to crucify him. Then they compelled a certain man, Simon, a Cyrenian, the father of Alexander and Rufus, as he was coming out of the country and passing by to bear his cross. And they brought him to the place Golgotha, which is translated place of a skull. And they gave him wine, mingled with myrrh to drink, but he did not take it. And when they had crucified him, they delivered his garments, casting lots for them to determine what every man should take. Now it was the third hour when they crucified him. Quick pause. They count their days from sunup, so it's now been three hours. Uh, it, was, it was probably six o'clock in the morning when they, you know, kind of tried to get Pilate's attention. It's now three hours later because the third hour would be nine o'clock in the morning. So now it was the third hour, verse 25, and they crucified him. And the inscription of his accusation was written above, the king of the Jews. With him they also crucified two robbers, one on his right and the other on his left. 
So the scripture was fulfilled, which says, and he was numbered with the transgressors. And those who passed by blasphemed him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. Likewise, the chief priests, also mocking among them with the scribes, said, He saved others, himself he cannot save. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, descend now from the cross so that we may see it and believe. And even those who were crucified with him reviled him. Now, when the sixth hour had come, so we've three hours later, we're now at noon. When the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. So from noon to three o'clock in the afternoon. At the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is translated, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of those who stood by when they heard that said, look, he's calling for Elijah. Then someone ran and filled a sponge full of sour wine and put it on a reed and offered it to him to drink, saying, let him alone. Let us see if Elijah will come down and take him, take him down. And Jesus cried out with a loud voice and breathed his last. Then the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. When the centurion who stood opposite him saw that he cried out like this and breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. There were also women looking on from afar, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James the last, and Joseph and Salome, who followed him and ministered to him when he was in Galilee, and many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. Now when evening had come, because it was the preparation day, that is the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of the Arimathea, a prominent council member who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, coming and taking courage, went into Pilate and asked him for the body of Jesus. Pilate marveled that he was already dead, and summoning the centurion, he asked him if he had already been dead for some time. So when they found out from the centurion, he granted the body to Joseph. Then he brought fine linen, took him down, wrapped him in linen, and laid him in a tomb, which had been hewn from a rock, and rolled a stone against the door of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of Joseph observed where he was laid." Wow. I mean, I don't even know how you process this. I mean, we read through, you know, almost two whole chapters in some ways, thinking through all the events that take place on this day, trying to imagine and see Jesus Christ and Him crucified, and trying to wrap our minds around it. And for me, it becomes just this almost impossible. Like, how do I even get there? Like, how do I understand all that this is? I mean, how do I... I mean, there's so many dynamics. There's so much happening there and there's so much that's in the midst of it. It's so fascinating to me as we read this with how simple the, the Scripture is that talks about it. They just tell him they took him and they crucified him. Now, we know from history, we know uh, from, from just kind of people that study this, that crucifixion was the most painful of death. Excruciating literally means out of the cross. But it's interesting to me that none of that's really found in Scripture. I mean, it's not that it didn't happen, but uh, the writers of Scripture don't dive deeply there. Uh, they don't, you know, take us through all the physical ag agony in this moment. And that becomes, again, part of the, how do we get there? How do we understand what this looks like? I mean, how do we dive into this in any sense deeper to say, okay, I want to understand this. I want to do what Paul says in Philippians. He says, I want to just step into the fellowship of Jesus Christ and Him crucified. How do you do that? Now, again, I'm just going to admit my smallness, my, my weakness, and just struggle in that, and just part of what even moves me into this moment. But one of the things that grabbed me a number of years ago is that God did give us something to help. Uh, he does give us something that helps us get a window into what's happening from Jesus' perspective, that has, has really helped me on, on, when I think about this, and again, I want to help you with that. So I want you to invite you now to leave with me from Mark's gospel and head over to Psalm 22. Make your way to the book of Psalms. Go with me to Psalm 22. It's a prophetic psalm. It's a psalm that David writes, but it's a messianic psalm. It's literally a psalm that you know, God gives him as one who, who sees this and it becomes a psalm that has no other fulfillment than really being from Jesus' perspective. 
I mean, sometimes there are places in Scripture that have kind of dual fulfillments that you could say, okay, part of this, you know, is David, and part of it kind of goes over to Jesus. This is not one. If you study this psalm, it, it doesn't fit anything that David went through. It doesn't fit anything that anybody else went through. It does fit Jesus, which is absolutely fascinating to me, that God takes us into the cross from Jesus's perspective hundreds of years before he ever dies, but giving us to this so that you could almost gaze on it with us and, and just see it in some ways, the suffering that's there. Well, that's where we want to go. That, that's what we want to think through because Jesus quotes from this. Again, we'll pull, show you more in a moment, but we read it there a moment ago in Mark's gospel where it said, you know, Jesus cries out, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And maybe you know, but let me tell you now, that's Psalm 22. So he quotes from Psalm 22 that almost just helps us connect the dots and say, okay, if we want to understand the cross, this is where we need to go. So let's do this. Let's make our way through um, Psalm 22, just kind of helping you understand uh, the different aspects of it. And then before we finish this evening, we want to come back and once more just read it. Uh, just, just kind of read it and kind of just warning you now or letting you know now we're going to get to that moment. We're going to turn off all the lights and, and we're just going to read it, and, you know, just almost in that moment of thinking through those three hours of darkness uh, of Jesus' suffering. But to kind of head that direction. I want you just to kind of process this through in a way that you would see what God tells us about his suffering. So it really begins kind of giving us a breakdown of how he suffers. And in verses one through five, it really gives us a window into the suffering that was spiritual for Jesus. So notice it with me. We get it from verse one, that quote that Jesus quotes that you just read in Mark. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me? From the words of my groaning, my God, I cry out in the daytime, but you do not hear. In the night season, and I am not silent, but you are holy, enthroned in the praises of Israel. Our fathers trusted in you, they trusted, and you delivered them. They cried out to you and were delivered. They trusted in you and were not ashamed." So it launches into us in this incredible place that helps us to see the agony that Jesus was going through. And it's probably no surprise, or it maybe shouldn't be a surprise to you, that of everything that Jesus is suffering on this day in his life, the greatest suffering is spiritual. The greatest agony, the, the greatest weight, the greatest pain is, is that which he felt there. And we need to see that. And so it begins with this just altogether huge moment where Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's the only time in Jesus's life where he speaks to the Father this way. Every other place when he prays, he talks to his Father as his Father, Abba Father, you know, and, and, and speaking to him. But here, there's distance. More than distance, there's separation. When Jesus takes your sin and my sin on him on the cross, part of the suffering that takes place is he is literally separated from God, that your sin separated him from God while our sin was placed on him. That is really impossible for you and I to get into, but we just need to think it through for a moment. And maybe, just maybe, you have the smallest inkling of what this is. I don't know if it's happened to you. Maybe it has. I hope there are days that you just have really good days with God. The kind of days where you just feel like, you know, He's right there, like His presence is almost palpable, and you just are enjoying, you're just enjoying being there, and you're just enjoying, you know, you're kind of in this place like, God is so good, He's so great, and then all of a sudden something happens, and it's gone. Uh, maybe maybe you, 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 something goes wrong, maybe you go to sleep and you wake up the next day, and all of a sudden there's just, it's just like, there's this separation, there's this distance that feels painful. Now, that pain is something we always go through. Sin separates us from God. That's the nature of what sin does. That's the nature of what is. It's something we face every single day. But for all eternity, Jesus never had. I mean, him and the Father, the fellowship they had just an intimate, close, perfect. And so this moment, something happens that is beyond your understanding, beyond my understanding, but we have to get there. 
The cross is more than this. The cross is physical. It is emotional, but it is first and foremost spiritual, and you have to get there with this. You have to understand how great this is, that this moment Jesus feels that separation, that place of being forsaken by God. And in that separation, it's something just, this is, you know, my God, I cry out in the daytime and you do not hear in the night season. And there's just this almost just like, hey, I'm going through in this day and then into this night, this probably three hours of darkness. And it's just like, there's nothing happening. There's no response. There's, there's no connection. And the weight of sin is just pressing in on him. Nevertheless, he says in verse 3, but you are holy, enthroned in the praises of Israel. Our fathers trusted in you, and they trusted, and you delivered them. They cried to you and were delivered. They trusted, and you were not, and you were, they were not ashamed. This moment of separation does it, you know, Jesus handles it perfectly. I'm just, again, trying to figure out how to say this simply. Sometimes when we suffer, and when we feel separated, we can begin to almost blame God, almost feel at this moment like, God, you're letting me down. God, you're failing. God, you, you, you know, somehow this doesn't seem right. Now, you've probably never done that. I'm just talking about me, so you guys can just, but if you've ever felt that moment where you're just like, you know, it, you know you've really messed up, but somehow in this moment, it, it begins to kind of, you know, you almost begin to accuse God of failing you. Jesus doesn't. He's able in this moment to say, God, you are the one. You are the one that they've trusted in. You are the holy God. You are the one who's enthroned. You are the one who's there. And what I want to just kind of say in a very simple way, that doesn't decrease the suffering, that increases it. One of the reasons we, you know, get into those moments where we, you know, have a hard day and we begin to accuse God, it's almost like this, like, you know, it, it's, it's the only way we can process through what we're going through. It's like, maybe God failed. Maybe He forgot about me. Maybe, maybe He didn't see. I don't know what's going on in this moment. But if you could say, God, you're perfect. You're, you're on your throne and you're holy, and you're the one who's come through, but this is in your, there's separation right now. That doesn't decrease the suffering, it increases it. And that's where Jesus is. I mean, He is spiritually feeling the weight of your sin and my sin on Him. That's the biggest part. I mean, I, just, I spend more time on that this evening than the other sections because I just need you to get there, because sometimes we can be those that don't get it. We can think through the cross and only see, you know, other aspects of it, but this is the primary aspect, is that Jesus is suffering spiritually. But He's also suffering emotionally, or we might even say relationally. And if I can just quickly explain this, we're going to look at Jesus' suffering. It's spiritual, it's emotional or relational, and it's physical. Those three define your life. I mean, there are three aspects of you. You're spiritual, you're physical, you're emotional. And to see Jesus' suffering is to see all three of these, to see that it wasn't just one aspect of this. I mean, we, we see a spiritual suffering, but we also see just the relationship that is happening in the midst of this. And so he just describes it for us. There in verse 6, he says, But I'm a worm and no man, a reproach of men and despised by the people. All those who see me, they ridicule me. They shoot out their lips saying, they shake their heads saying, He trusted in the Lord. Let Him rescue Him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. But you are he who took me out of the womb. You made me trust while on my mother's breast. I was cast upon you from birth, from my mother's womb. You have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. Many bulls have surrounded me, strong bulls of Bashan. They've encircled me. They gape at me with their mouths like a, a raging and roaring lion. Vivid, emotional, much that's here, but please catch this. It begins with just this statement of just of, of how he's being treated. He says, I'm a worm and no man, and, and the language of that is incredibly powerful. It's this idea of him being treated of the lowest of the lowest, of the worst of all people, of how that's being just people's perspective of this, and it's certainly how he's being treated. He says, I'm, I'm this one who, who people ridicule, they shoot out their head, they, they mock me, and there's this separation happening in the midst of this. But in the midst of this, again, he's still on the place that doesn't lose sight of, of how God made him. Again, he just takes us back to the womb, which is fascinating. You're the one that took me, 
who took me out of the womb, made me trust while on my mother's breast. I was cast from the birth, cast, cast upon you from birth, from my mother's womb. You've been my God. Takes us all the way back to like, so I mean, there's this perfect relationship that he has with God. There's this way that he's made. There's a, there's a, a place that's in this, and he's way, just trusting in that. But at the same moment, he just describes how people are treat, treating him. You know, he says, many bulls surrounded me like strong bulls of Bashan. They encircle me. They, they gape at me. And there's just a mockery. There's a, a ridicule that's happening here. And you just need to feel it. And once more, just simply say, that's part of the suffering. To be ridiculed, to, 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 to be separated, to, to find yourself alone, which is where Jesus finds himself here as he, as he looks at this. In verse 11, he says, there's just no one. There's no one to help. Now, he'd already told the disciples what was going to happen. He said, you guys are all going to betray me. Like, nobody's going to stand with me. I am going to stand alone. And that's exactly what happens. In fact, it's interesting, just putting it up on the screen, in Matthew's gospel, when it pictures it, it says, those who passed by blasphemed him, waging their head, wagging their heads against him, saying, you destroyed the temple and build it in three days. Save yourself. If you're the son of God, come down from the cross and gives us this perspective. Likewise, the chief priests, mocking with the scribes and elders, said, you know, he saved others and himself he cannot see save. And they continue the mocking. If he's the king of Israel, let him come down from the cross. We'll believe him. I mean, if he just, and he's mocking everything that he is, he trusted, they said, and God let him deliver him. Now, if he will have him, for he said, I am the son of God. One of the fascinating things about this is what they're saying, and certainly they probably weren't thinking about it, but they literally are quoting Psalm 22. I mean, they're literally kind of saying it. You, you look there at verse 8, where they are going to say, says they're going to they're shoot out the lip, and they're going to shake their head saying, he trusted in the Lord. Let him rescue him. It's part of the suffering that was, was just prophesied through this. It's part of the, the weight that's happening there, and it's a big part of it. It's a big part of what's happening. It's rare that probably we even think this through as deeply as maybe we ought. Again, if we think about the suffering of Christ, we think about it physically, and we might think about it spiritually. But sometimes it's the relational stuff that is the hardest stuff. Can I just turn this around and talk about you for a moment? Some of the things that are happening in your life right now, some of the emotional things that are happening in your life right now, they're some of the hardest things you're having to deal with. Some of you are like, man, I'd rather, you know, you know, put a nail through my foot, you know, than have to face having to deal with how these people are dealing with me. I mean, I would rather, you know, hit me in the, ha- in the head with a hammer. I mean, just, I mean, this is so much harder to have to deal with the way that people mock or ridicule or make fun or treat me. This is so, it hurts worse than, than, than physical. And I, I, I just want to tell you, that's huge. And Jesus is suffering. Part of your sin does that. Sin is what shatters relationships. Sin is what causes distance to happen. And so that is being laid upon Christ now. That on this day on the cross, there's part of what's happening here. And, and, and the emotive, the, the relational aspect is pouring out upon him because he's suffering for us. And that's helpful. Helpful. Hebrews tells us his suffering helps us understand that if he went through all that, we can find him to be relatable and, and helpful. So it's physical. I'm sorry, it's, it's spiritual, it's relational, but it is physical. It is something happening that the pain that's happening in here, it's hard to imagine. Again, we read through a little bit of it. Uh, some of you maybe have seen the movie Passion of the Christ, and if some watch it every year, it's a good movie to kind of think it through as long as you do understand uh, that it really comes at it from a very, uh, I want to say this carefully, not harmfully, and not just accusatorily, kind of a Catholic perspective, and it has a lot of uh, stuff in there that's not Scripture, and it really focuses primarily on the physical, but you know, sometimes it's helpful, because sometimes for some of us as Christians, we so disassociate it. It's like, Jesus died on the cross. <laughs> okay, let's go on, <laughs> like, and not think through how painful it is. Well, that's exactly what it does here, and so it gives us a perspective of what Jesus went through and how he felt. Verse 14, I am poured out like water, all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue clings to my jaws. For you have brought me to the dust of death. For dogs surrounded me. The congregation of the wicked enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. 
They look and stare at me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Again, there's no way for me to go into this as deeply. I need to kind of keep moving, but there's power. He's like, I'm like poured out. It's just, it, these, these descriptions are so incredibly accurate because they describe what it would feel like to be crucified. Uh, crucifixion has not yet been invented in history when David writes this psalm. And yet what he describes here only fits crucifixion. It fits it well. It's this picture of almost just feeling that everything inside of you is just pouring out your heart. It just itself begins to just, just have incredible weight and pressure. Where he says it just felt like his, his heart within him was like wax, like melting. And, and so some would even say on the cross so often it was common that people would literally die of, of a heart attack, uh, of just the, the weight that was pressing down upon them because of the way crucifixion worked. On top of that, he just says, my strength is dried. You know, my tongue clings to the roof of my mouth, which is part of just the, the, the difficulty of crucifixion. Again, I don't have time to go into it in great detail, but quickly, I'm just giving you an understanding. Crucifixion, one of the things that made it so difficult was the way they made them suffer. So you would nail someone to the cross, not really through the palm of the hand, usually through the wrist, the radius, because that's how it would hold. And so you would find yourself just kind of just mounted there to the cross, and the way it would impact your inner organs is it made it hard to breathe. And, and the only way to breathe was to pull yourself up, to kind of pull that pressure off. And so you'd have to kind of push up on the weight of the nails uh, to kind of gasp for breath. And yet that would be so painful, you'd end up falling back down. And so there's this picture of Jesus just feeling just the weight of this. I mean, he's in this place where he's like, he's just gasping for breath, where he says, you know, he's just looking at here, he says, my strength, it's just dried dried up like a pot shirt. It's, it's my tongue clings to my jaws. They've brought me to the dust of death. And, and there's almost just this weight of this picture uh, of just this desperation. And that's, that's part of its suffering, uh, of just that moment by moment trying to find breath. Again, as he describes it, he tells us, they pierce my hands in verse 16 and my feet, which again is just fascinating because that's exactly what they did. I mean, the cross is him being crucified. He says, I can look and I can count on my bones. And I don't want to be too grotesque, but I just want to tell you, that's probably literal. What Jesus had gone through from the beginning there in Gethsemane to the, the beatings uh, with, the, sol- with the, the soldiers that arrest him to the Romans that, you know, literally whipped him with cords, it has probably left his flesh in just rags. And, and probably literally being able to look down and go, I, I, can, I can count my bones. I can see them. You know, my, 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 my whole body is, is, is just lashed to pieces and, and just feeling everything that's there. He describes it in an incredible way that helps us see the agony. So his suffering is spiritual, emotional, physical. All of these things are being laid upon him, but then it takes us to the answer. Verse 19, but you, O Lord, do not be far from me. O strength, hasten to help me. Deliver me from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the lion's mouth and from the horns of the wild oxen. You have answered me. So he gives us this picture whereby he looks here, he says, you know, but you, God, you know, you, you, God, don't be far from me. Don't, don't be the one that's distant from me. This picture of him crying out on the cross for God to come through, where he's asking, I want you to be my help. I need you to be my deliverer. I need you to save me. And in a very simple way, it tells us he does. It's verse 21 where he says, you have answered me. This is that moment on the cross where Jesus has died. He's paid for your sins and mine. I mean, he's been separated from God by the weight of your sin and mine. And he had began this psalm by saying, my God, my God, where are you? Why have you forsaken me? And now he's able to say, you heard me. You heard me. This is the moment in John's gospel where Jesus is able to say, it is finished. I've paid it. I've paid the whole price. It's done. I mean, the, the weight of this is done. The weight of this is there. And he says, you've answered me. You, you've heard me. And there's incredible joy in just recognizing what today is, is a day where all of that suffering was, was understood, where everything that's happening in this moment becomes everything that we need to hear. And the psalm ends with joy. It ends in a place that now we get to hear Jesus on the other side of the cross telling us his perspective, and in a sense, how you and I should be hearing it. 
He says in verse 22, I will declare your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, glorify him. And and fear him, all you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. Nor has he hidden his face from him. But when he cried out to him, he heard. My praise shall be of you in the great assembly. I will pay my vows before those who fear him. The poor shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him will praise the Lord. Let your heart live forever. So much there, but just a few of the things that he begins to say. He says, I'm going to declare. I'm going to declare the name of God. I'm going to say this is who God is. I'm going to be the one that declares it to all those who are his brethren, all those who would be that. I hope that's you this evening. I hope you're in that category that he would be this. And he just simply says, hey, if you fear God, if you're seeking him, you know, be the one who does that. In fact, in verse 26, is those who seek him will praise the Lord. Those who seek him will, will live forever. That there's, he's, he's looking back on the cross and he's saying, I'm going to tell everybody how amazed, I mean, my, my proclamation is, is the goodness of God. And, and to all those who would seek him to say, hey, here is life. All the ends of the world, verse 30, 27, shall remember and turn to the Lord. All the families of the nations shall worship before you, for the kingdom is the Lord's and he rules over nations. He says the whole world is going to be impacted by this. The cross changes everything. The cross changes everything. I mean, Jesus is celebrating this place uh, of where this, this people will remember they're going to turn to God. They're going to be those who, 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 who respond to that. And he says, all the prosperous of the earth, in verse 29, shall eat and worship, and those who go down to the dust shall bow before him, even he who cannot keep himself alive. Simply put, every knee is going to bow before Jesus. We bow willingly. The world's going to bow, all of them. Philippians tells us this, that everybody's going to eventually acknowledge he's everything. This was the center of the world. This was the center of eternity. They're not going to get saved through it, but they are going to recognize it, which he says, here's where they are. They're going to, they're going to bow down and they're going to see that. But he kind of closes all of that by saying, a posterity shall serve him. It will be counted of the Lord to the next generation. They will come and declare his righteousness to a people who will be born like you and me that he has done this. He says, there's going to be a posterity. There's going to be a continuation of this. There's going to be, can I say it this way, a church, a church of, who knows Jesus, who loves Jesus. There's going to be believers throughout the world who are going to rejoice in him, who are going to joy in God, who are going to joy in Jesus. And you know what we're going to say? God did it. He did it. Jesus did it. That the weight of who we are, the wonder of who we are, the wonder of what it is to be a Christian, the wonder of the cross is to look and say what God has done for us. Wow. So there you are. I mean, I've walked you through it briefly. There's much more in there, but it's so profound for me because we get a chance to see Jesus. We get a chance to see how he processes this. So I helped you understand it. I hope it wasn't too lengthy. So let's come back to it and do this. See, I think about that place. You know, we think about all of this suffering. We think about everything that's happening there. And I think about what we read in Mark's gospel a moment ago, where it told us when the sixth hour had come, which was noon, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. So it's, it's noon and for three hours, there's going to be darkness. There's going to be this place of suffering. There's going to be this place where your sin and mine is, is laid so effectively and perfectly upon him. And again, he cries out. It says, when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the land till the ninth hour. And he says, at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is translated, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In other words, again, it's inviting us to think through Psalm 22. So let's do this. You can close your Bibles if you want, because we're going to turn off the lights, uh, and I'm just going to read it now to you. I'm going to read to you Psalm 22, what we've just read Try to read it slowly. Try to read it in a way that would just help you to get there. But I'm hoping you will just think it through with me. You'll just hear it again, now having a little bit of understanding to this, that you'll hear Jesus. You'll hear what he's thinking. You'll hear what he's feeling as he comes to the cross. And so let's go ahead and turn off all the lights. And we'll just read through it and and see what we have there. So, yeah, all these ones up here too. 
All right. Let me pray first. Father, help us to hear this. Help us to hear you uh, this evening. Help us to hear your heart. Psalm 22, verse 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me? From the words of my groaning. Oh my God, I cry out in the daytime, but you do not hear. And in the night season, and I'm not silent, but you are holy, enthroned in the praises of Israel. Our fathers trusted in you. They trusted, and you delivered them. They cried to you and were delivered. They trusted in you and were not ashamed. But I am a worm and no man, a reproach of men and despised by the people. All those who see me ridicule me. They shoot out their lip. They shake their head saying, he trusted in the Lord. Let him rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. But you are he who took me out of the womb and made me trust while on my mother's breasts. I was cast upon you from birth, from my mother's womb. You have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. Many bulls have surrounded me, strong bulls of Bashan. They have encircled me. They gape at me with their mouths like a raging and roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is melted like wax. It is melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue clings to my jaws. You have brought me to the dust of death. For dogs have surrounded me. The congregation of the wicked have enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look and stare at me. They divide my garments among them, and from my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far from me. O my strength, hasten to help me. Deliver me from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the lion's mouth and from the horns of the wild oxen. You have answered me. We're going to turn the lights back up because now we move from the darkness. Now we move from that moment of what Jesus was feeling to how he looks back on it. And I just want to read it with you. I will declare your name to my brethren in the midst of the assembly. I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, glorify him and fear him. All you offspring of Israel. For he is not despised, nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, nor has he hidden his face from him when he cried out to him and he heard. My praise shall be of you in the great assembly. I will pay my vows before those who fear him. The poor shall eat and be satisfied, and those who seek him will praise the Lord. Let your heart live forever. All the ends of the world shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you, for the kingdom is the Lord's, and He rules over the nations. 
All the prosperous of the earth shall eat and worship, and those who go down to the dust shall bow before him. Even he who cannot keep himself alive. A posterity shall serve him, and it will be recounted of the Lord to the next generation. Then they will come and declare his righteousness to a people who will be born, that he has done this. Amen. Let's close in prayer, and then we'll close with a couple worship songs as we just celebrate that he has done this. Father, we think about tonight, and we try to just step towards into to gaze upon Jesus, you crucified. And I want to just tell you, wow, (laughs) thank you. I want to be one of those that Jesus, you described here in Psalm 22. I want to be of that generation that comes and joins the, the everlasting praise and say, God, you have done this. You are a righteous God. You are a God who's a a good God, who has accomplished for us everything that we need. Jesus, thank you for the cross. Thank you for your work on our behalf. God, as we've thought about it tonight, help us now as we just take a couple moments and close with a couple of songs and just sing to you. Be a part of that great assembly that will just declare how good you are.